What I want to do this afternoon, brothers and sisters, is look at uh, Psalm 119, but not any particular stanza. Instead, I want to uh, take this concluding session on the psalm to talk about two questions, theological questions really, that arise out of our study of this psalm. And those two questions are these. First, how is it possible for the psalmist continually to be saying, I have kept your commandments or I have observed your testimonies? You have that numerous times in the psalm. And the second question is related to it, closely related. How can the psalmist use his obedience to the commandments as a ground for his requests for salvation or for help from the Lord? He asks things from the Lord and then he says, because I have kept your commandments, that sort of statement. So it's those two kinds of statements that we want to look at this afternoon and how we are to understand them. Now, the first of those statements, I have kept your statutes, I have kept your judgments, that sort of thing, it's stated in different ways. I have a list here of about a dozen of these statements, but let me just pick out a few of them. Um, First in verse 55, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. Notice there, I remember your name in the night and I keep your law. He's, he says he keeps the commandments of God. Uh, verse 129 is another example. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. And then uh, at the very end of the psalm, or very near the end of the psalm, in verses 166 to 168, you have a series of these statements together. Lord, I hope for your salvation, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. It's that kind of statement, then, that we want to talk about. How can the psalmist say those kinds of things? Now, of course, we recognize that Psalm 119 is not the only place in the Psalms where you have this kind of statement. It's not the only place in the Scriptures where you have this kind of statement. There's a strong statement of this sort in Psalm 26. For example, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart, for your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. Then he goes on to give some details about this. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked, and so on. So he claims righteousness there also in that psalm. That's David, by the way, in Psalm 26, though we don't know who it is here in Psalm 119. This is the kind of statement we're very reluctant to make, of course. To say to God, and the psalmist is saying these things to God, I have kept your law, or I have observed your statutes or your judgments. And, of course, we're reluctant to say this kind of thing because of other scriptural teaching. Most strikingly, perhaps, 
the statements that John makes in 1 John 1, near the end of that chapter, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And again in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So on the one hand, you have John saying, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and we call God a liar. And on the other hand, we have the psalmist in Psalm 119 saying, I have kept your statutes. There are other uh, places where we can read uh, the similar kinds of statements. In Romans chapter 3, for example, the Apostle Paul is emphasizing the uh, sin of man. And he says in verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Um, Here we have the psalmist talking about the law, Psalm 119, talking about the holiness and righteousness of the law, of God celebrating the righteousness of that law and saying at the same time, I have kept it. And yet Paul says, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And even at the end of Psalm 119, we have the psalmist himself confessing his sins. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. So how can he say this? I have kept your commandments. Well, there are a couple of things, I think, that we should notice right away. And these are are not complete answers to the question, but they are are things that are, I think, important in considering the meaning of what the psalmist says. Some of these claims that he makes to uh, having kept the commandments of God are simply assertions that he has not been swayed in his Christian walk by the uh, persecution of his enemies. They have not, by their persecution, forced him or driven him away from his commitment to the keeping of God's law. You have a a statement like that in verse 51. For example, the proud have me in great derision, yet I do not turn aside from your law. Or verse 87, they almost made an end of me on earth, but I did not forsake your precepts. So when the psalmist uh, makes those kinds of statements and that kind of context, he's not claiming righteousness, perfect righteousness, I think. The point that he's making is, is not, I've never sinned. But the point he's making is that in spite of the persecution of his enemies, he has continued to love and to seek to obey the commandments of God. They have not uh, driven him away or uh, forced him away from his commitment to the keeping of God's law. So it's it's not necessarily a claim of perfect righteousness. In other cases, I think it's very clear that 
When the psalmist makes this kind of statement, he's saying only this making this kind of statement only in very limited circumstances. That is, he's saying in the present circumstances, in the present temptation or in the present uh, circumstances of my life, I uh, have no sin to confess. In this particular matter that I'm thinking about, I have no sin to confess. Calvin uh, talks about verse 121 of the psalm in his commentary, and I'd like to read you a short part of that. Verse 121 in the psalm says, I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. And Calvin says about this in his commentary, the prophet implores the help of God against the wicked who troubled him. And he does so in such a manner as at the same time to testify that the harassing treatment he received from them was on his part altogether undeserved. If we would have God to come down to succor us, it becomes us to see to it that we meet him with the testimony of a good conscience. As he everywhere promises his aid to the afflicted who are unrighteously oppressed, it is no superfluous protestation which the prophet makes that he had not provoked his enemies, but had restrained himself from all injury and wrongdoing, and had not even attempted to requite evil for evil. So what Calvin is saying there is, He's not claiming righteousness in all of his life. He's simply saying that his enemies are oppressing him and afflicting him unrighteously, that there's no cause of oppression in his sins. That his enemies are attacking him because he is, in fact, a righteous man. But I think there's more to it than that, and there has to be more to it than that, because... In some of these statements, the psalmist, the context doesn't indicate this kind of um, this kind of circumstance that we've been talking about. For example, when he says that in verse fifty-five, "I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law." It's not qualified in that particular verse by any reference to his enemies or by any a reference to a particular circumstance in his life. He's simply saying, I keep your law. Well, in, in that connection, then, I think there are some broader principles or broader truths that we have to keep in mind. First of all, I've pointed out frequently as we've been working our way through this psalm that this is a psalm that our Lord Jesus Christ uh, made his own during his earthly ministry, especially And he said, I have kept your law. And he said it without any need, of course, to qualify it in any way whatsoever. He had kept the commandments of God from his childhood all the way to the very end of his life. There was no fault to be found in him. His enemies sought fault against him and could find no fault in him. His father in heaven could not condemn him for any fault in himself. He was the spotless lamb of God, and only as the spotless lamb of God could he be the atonement for our sins. And so, first of all, it's he who is saying it. 
And the second thing then that we have to recognize is that our claims to righteousness and to holiness must be in him. can never say the kinds of things that the psalmist says here in Psalm 119 about keeping the law of God apart from our Savior. If we say them apart from our Savior, we are uh, lying. And we are calling God a liar. The only possibility for us to say, I have kept your commandments, even in those particular circumstances that we were talking about a moment ago, is in our Savior. He is our righteousness, and He is our sanctification. He is the one who makes us holy, and it's only as He has worked in us that we can claim that holiness. And that's why in this psalm, you find the psalmist not only saying, I have kept your law, but praying to the Lord, teach me your statutes, and many other similar kinds of prayers. He's not saying then in this psalm, I have kept them by myself without any help of any sort. I have done this out of my own strength and out of my own ability. He's saying first to God, teach me your statutes, and only when you have taught me will I be able to keep your statutes. In fact, you have these contrasting statements in the psalm. And it's very important to note those contrasting statements. On the one hand, he, he says to God, do this for me because I have kept your statutes. But on the other hand, and we'll come back to what he means about that in a few minutes. On the other hand, he says, teach me your statutes so that I may, or, or rather, save me or deliver me so that I may keep your statutes. On the one hand, he says, deliver me because I have kept your statutes. On the other hand, save me so that I may keep your statutes. The contrasting statements, and somehow we have to fit those contrasting statements together in our own minds. And the way to do it is in our Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to call your attention to what our catechism says uh, in the Lord's Day on Justification about this question and answer 60. the second part of that answer, God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never committed nor had any sins, and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me. That's what we have to understand here in this psalm when he says, I have kept your statutes It is as if I had never committed nor had any sins and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me. It's in Christ that we make these kinds of claims and only in Christ. And it's because then 
of this fact, the fact of Christ's justifying and sanctifying work that we read in Numbers 23, in Balaam's prophecy regarding Israel, he has not beheld iniquity in Jacob. I think what I'm trying to get at, people of God, is we can never come before God and make a claim to obedience to his commandments unless we can be convinced of that truth in Numbers 23. I have not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Unless we cannot, unless we are convinced, in other words, that Christ is our righteousness and our sanctification, and that God sees us in Christ. In him, we say, I have kept your statutes. In fact, to go back to 1 John again, the same letter in which John says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In chapter 3, verse 9, he says, whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. It's the the work of grace, then, that makes it possible for us to say, I have kept your commandments. And this, I think, is illustrated in a very striking way in the Old Testament when we think about the fact that the testimonies of God in the Old Testament were far broader than the Ten Commandments. The testimonies of God included all those testimonies and all those uh, laws and regulations about the sacrifices and the ceremonies of the law. And when the psalmist says, I have kept your commandments, he means I have kept those commandments about the sacrifices. I have offered the sacrifices required of me. And I have kept the commandments about those ceremonial cleansings. I've done those things. And I've embraced the promises that are declared to me in those things. So the sacrifices were the shedding of blood as a type of the atoning blood of Christ. And when he says, I have kept your law, he means I've offered the sacrifices required of me and I've embraced the promise of the atonement in those sacrifices. That's why I can say I have kept your testimonies. And I have uh, embraced the promise of cleansing in the ritual purifications of the law. I have looked to the promise of God and I have received the benefit and the joy and the blessing of those promises. And we do the same thing, don't we? God commands us to confess our sins and to repent of them. God commands us to embrace the promise of forgiveness in Christ. And as we obey these commandments to embrace the promises and to Uh, For example, observe the sacraments which display the promise of forgiveness in Christ. 
We too can receive the righteousness and sanctification of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's very much a part then of the work of grace by which we come to this knowledge, come to this conviction that we can say to God, I have kept your testimonies. Let's go on then to the second question, and this one is related, as I said, to the first question. He not only talks about having kept the commandments of God, but he also uses his obedience to the commandments as a ground for his petitions. Again, I have some examples here, and there are many of these examples throughout. Verse 22 is a good one. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. It's verse 22. Verse 31, I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, do not put me to shame. Verse 43, So shall I have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. Verse 45, And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. That last is not a petition, but this idea is still the same. He asks God for things, or he says he has things from God, because he has kept God's precepts. He seems to be saying to us, we almost automatically read it as saying, I have earned the right not only to ask this of you, but to receive it from you. I have, as it were, wrenched myself out of the course of sin in which I was walking and I'm now walking in righteousness and therefore I ask you to do this or that for me. And of course that's a problem if that's the way we're going to interpret it. That's a problem because it contradicts the gospel of grace. In Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and following, the Apostle Paul is very explicit, very strong about this. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer works. Paul says it's not a mix of grace and works. It can't be. If it's of works, it's of works, not of grace. If it's of grace, it's of grace, not of works. You can't mix the two. They don't mix. In fact, if you try to mix the two, you um, do away with grace and you do away with work, both. You have nothing left anymore. So what is he saying here? What's he getting at? And of course, we don't, we don't want to say this kind of thing either. As if we can uh, say, you, I've saved myself, I've, I've taken myself out of my way of sin, and now I expect your blessing. 
we know very well, of course, that we can't merit God's blessing. And the the illustration that our catechism uses, again, in the early Lord's days, is the illustration of debt. So, let's imagine that you're in debt to some creditor. And your debt is enormous. Your debt is so enormous that you can't pay it back. The best that you can do is scrape and skimp and save and deny yourself and pay off the current interest obligations. The debt remains, but you're fulfilling the current obligation of the interest payments. And your creditor comes to you and says to you, you need to start paying down the principal. You say, I can't. I'm doing everything possible to, uh, to pay off just the interest. I'm denying myself and my family all kinds of things, even some things which you would probably consider essential, so that I can just meet these interest payments. Well, this is the situation we're in with God. If we can imagine that we can just pay him current obligations, pay off the current uh, debt of interest owed, and that obligation, that current obligation, remember, is everything that we have and are. We don't have anything left over after we have paid current obligations to pay that initial debt. There's nothing left. When you have done all that is required of you, say, I am an unprofitable servant. I've done that which is my duty to do. So if we could keep the commandments of God perfectly, the best that we could say is, I'm meeting current obligations that has nothing to say about paying off past debts. And of course, we don't even do that. We don't even meet current obligations. Instead, we're daily adding to the initial debt. That's the situation we're in. And so, how is it possible for the psalmist to say, Do this or that for me. Save me because I have kept your precepts. Well, he's not contradicting the gospel of grace. We can take that as a given, of course. But again, I think that there are some things where we can say he doesn't, he's talking about particular and limited types of situations here where he's he's saying for example to God deliver me from my enemies because I have kept your precepts it doesn't mean I've paid off my debts he's saying simply my cause is righteous and his wicked vindicate me not him deliver me don't give him the victory over me You are a righteous judge. That's one kind of statement that we have here. But there's more to it than that again. There are basic theological principles here. And 
And one of those basic theological principles is the principle that God states so uh, emphatically and at such length in the book of Deuteronomy, that he blesses those who keep his commandments and that he curses those who do not. He says to his people over and over again, keep my commandments and I will bless you. Depart from my commandments and you will be cursed. And he makes the people, in fact, say to that proclamation of the blessings and curses of the law, Amen. They they say this, uh, Amen, to God. Then, let me be blessed if I keep the commandments. Let me be cursed if I do not. The law defines the way and place of blessing then. We're not blessed out there, away from the law, outside the law, in disobedience to the law. That's not where God's blessing is found. God's blessing is found in the law, in the place of the law, in the way of the law, in the way of the commandments. And so, in order to be blessed, we must come back to the law, to the keeping of God's commandments. Now the question is, how do we get to that place? And the answer to that question is, not by the law. The law tells us, here is the place of blessing. Keeping this law is the place of blessing, the way of blessing. You must be here, not there, outside the law, but here in the law in order to be blessed. But the law doesn't help us get there. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. The law cannot do it because of the weakness of our flesh. The law is not able to save. The law cannot restore us to the keeping of God's commandments. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. How do we get back to the place and the way of blessing? By grace. We come back again to the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Get back into that place and way of blessing. By Christ. And so relying on that principle that God blesses those who, are, who keep his law, we say, bless me, do this or that for me, because I have kept your law. Not because I've earned it. Not because I have wrenched myself out of the way of transgression and brought myself back into obedience but because you, by your grace in Christ, have brought me back here to this place of blessing, to this way of life. Again, we can talk to uh, or listen to what Calvin has to say, this time about verse 159. Verse 159 says this
Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. So he says, consider how I love your precepts and revive me. Calvin says about this, What I have stated before must be remembered, that when the saints speak of their own piety before God, they are not chargeable with obtruding their own merits as the ground of their confidence. But they regard this as a settled principle that God, who distinguishes his servants from the profane and wicked, will be merciful to them because they seek him with their whole heart. Besides an unfeigned love of God's laws and undoubted evidence of adoption, since this love is the work of the Holy Spirit. The prophet, therefore, although he arrogates nothing to himself, very properly adduces his own piety for the purpose of encouraging himself to entertain the more assured hope of obtaining his request through the grace of God, which he had experienced. So he appeals to his own piety, but it's because he has a sure hope of the grace of God, which he has experienced. And then a little bit later, now as in keeping the law, it behooves us to begin with voluntary obedience so that nothing may delight us more than the righteousness of God. So on the other hand, it must not be forgotten that a sense of the free goodness of God and of his fatherly love is indispensably necessary in order to our hearts being inclined to this affection, that is, to affection for the law. Cannot even have an affection for the law, he says, unless we have the knowledge of the grace and fatherly love of God for us. And so, even when we say, do this because I have kept your statutes, we mean, I know your grace, I know you as my Father in heaven, I know your goodness, you have saved me, therefore, bless me. And we add, because I have kept your statutes, because the keeping of the statutes is the evidence to us that God has indeed worked by grace, sanctified us in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification and redemption. You are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in Christ. Therefore, you can say, I have kept your law. May God bless his word for us.